really is great, isn't it, to uh, worship a God who cares so wonderfully for us that he would sacrifice his son to allow us to enter into his presence. I just want to add my voice to uh, both Tim and Kevin who've uh, wished the mothers here a happy Mother's Day. And that, of course, extends to mothers, grandmothers, aunts, uh, people who uh, are mothering toward others. Uh, we really do want to thank you for all that you are and all that you do. It's ironic, isn't it, that on one day in the year, the culture goes crazy. Uh, maybe because the flowers can be sold and the cards can be sold, but for the rest of the year, 364 days, it seems like this culture just doesn't appreciate mothers. And it downplays mothering and, and treats it like an inconvenience uh, and something that uh, we should sort of avoid at all costs. And yet the Bible absolutely disagrees with that. And there is no uh, greater uh, privilege, really, than to have a godly mother influencing your life. There is no greater ministry that you can have in the world, if God gives you that, than to be a mother. And so please, uh, be affirmed from God's word. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15:58 comes to mind. As I watch Melanie, I, I've had the, the privilege of a, a wonderful mother and being married to a wonderful mother. And when I watch Melanie in action, I, I often think of 1 Corinthians 15:58: Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And uh, being a mother is labor beyond labor, isn't it? And so, uh, happy Mother's Day. Now then. We're in this uh, series in Mark, and, and we've just been singing this song uh, about God being a holy God whose presence bears no sin. How can I come into that presence? I, I suspect that if I could read your minds, which I can't, we could go around this room, and I suspect that a big number of us, deep down, would have feelings of guilt. It's an ever-present reality, isn't it, that we live with guilt in our lives. Uh, it could be something big, something small, something said, something done, something thought, something distant past, something this week. The guilt seems to have a grip on humanity. But we're going to look at a passage this morning, and in this passage, Jesus is going to say that all sin, every sin, will be forgiven. Now, we've got to take that in its context, we've got to understand what he means, we've got to understand how uh, all sin can be forgiven. But he also refers to one sin that will not be forgiven. The unpardonable sin. You may have heard of it. The, the unforgivable sin. And if we're sitting here already with a, a little tinge of guilt for something in our lives, uh, I wonder if maybe some of us are sitting here thinking, I hope I haven't done that one. I, I hope I haven't committed the unpardonable sin because that is just too scary uh, to even begin to think about. We're going to look at this passage. It's a key passage in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to see exactly what the unpardonable sin is. And I, I suspect that for most of us it will be very reassuring when we see that actually we haven't committed it. But let's hold that thought. Let's hold that tension and look at the passage. We're, we're in this Gospel of Mark. A Gospel is a book that is completely and entirely and uniquely about Jesus. And so last week, if you were here, you remember in the morning we started off with the introduction and those first 13 verses where Mark leaves the reader in absolutely no doubt as to who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the, the Lord, all capitals in the Old Testament. Yahweh, come to deliver his people. 
He's the one that is so much greater and more powerful, stronger than John the Baptist. He's the one that the Father loves, that the Spirit descends upon, uh, the, uh, the one that Satan opposes. And you get through those first 13 verses. And, and if you're reading with your eyes open and your hearts open, and if you understand what it's saying, the way Mark's readers would have probably understood what he was saying, you have no doubt who Jesus is. But then the story moves on. It's as if the, uh, the, the first 13 verses are on a, a different stage and the curtain closes and a, a curtain opens somewhere else. And, and then the action begins. And as you uh, sit in the audience reading the gospel, watching the action, you start to realize that the people on the stage don't know who Jesus is. We saw it last week a little bit in the first chapter. If you read through into the second chapter, you'd see the same thing again. That the people are struggling to figure out who is this Jesus. And so last week in the evening, we looked at the rest of chapter 1. And we had this 24 hours, day in the life of Christ. We saw him teaching and, and healing and casting out demons and the synagogue doors closed and he carried on and the, the whole town came to the front door and he cared and he healed and he looked after them. And then the next morning he headed out into the wilderness to, to be with the Father and maybe to face a temptation. Because sure enough, after a while, the disciples come chasing uh, with an anxiety in their voice. Uh, and they pursue him and they say, you've got to come back. There are people that need you. There are people that want you. Uh, this, this show is going to become big. Capernaum's going to be the center. And Jesus, interestingly, refused. Some people wanted healing and Jesus refused. He said, no, I, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. Because I have come to preach. He's a man on a mission. He's come to preach. He's come to do something more than a temporary fix of physical problems. And so he heads on and we had the story of the leper that was cleansed. And then you go through chapter 2 and there's a whole sequence of stories there. And Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sin despite the grumbling of the experts in the, in the corner. He demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath, which really winds up the uh, religious leaders. And, and you get the sense as you're walking through this, that this is not going to end nicely. That if Jesus keeps on clashing with these religious leaders, it's going to, well, it's going to go pear-shaped for him. It's just not going to be a good scene. It's going to be a bit of a fireworks display eventually. And sure enough, in chapter 3, we come to the, the climax of the tension. You say, hang on a minute, it's the 16 chapters. <laughs> How can we be at the climax of the tension in chapter 3? Well, actually, as far as the leaders of Israel are concerned, from this point on, in the story we're going to read, from this point on, the die is cast. The decision is made. They are absolutely not going to accept this man as their Messiah. So let's see how that works in this passage. We're in chapter 3. It's on page 708 in the Blue Bible. And uh, we'll, we'll jump in at, we'll start at verse 7. We won't read the first little paragraph here. We'll just scan our eyes over it. Because really this is the summary of, of the past chapter and a half. Building up to the, the, the part where we'll focus in. Okay, So just look at verse 7. It's always a good idea when you read the Bible to actually look at it, I find. And uh, that sounds silly, doesn't it? But some people, you know, you, you kind of listen to them and you think, well, have you read it? 
You know, we've got to be very diligent to read and see what, what's going on. And even just a, a scan of the eyes on this paragraph here, uh, there's a large crowd from Galilee following him. And then there's a whole list of names. Many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon. And there's a crowd, and they're crowding him. You, you get the sense that, that his ministry is expanding. He starts off in Galilee, but now he's got people from Jerusalem and Judea. That's down south. They're coming. And Idumea and the regions across the Jordan River, that's over to the east. And, and Tyre and Sidon, that's north and west. His ministry is expanding. And he's creating a following. And, and the people are coming. Fame is spreading. And, uh, well, he keeps on casting out demons. There's a lot of this demonic tension in Mark's Gospel. And interestingly, the, the crowds, the, the followers, the family, the people all around Jesus, they don't know who he is, but the demons always do. They don't want to trust demons too much, but in this case, they can't help themselves. And when they see Jesus, they cry out, you're, what does it say, you are the son of God. And he tells them strictly to keep it quiet. Doesn't need a force of demons going around the nation preaching for him. He wants them to keep it quiet. And next week... Next Sunday morning, we'll see why Jesus keeps trying to keep everything quiet. You read the books about Mark's gospel, you'll, you'll read this concept of the Markan secret. That's a lovely title. It just means, why does Mark have this secret emphasis? Well, wait till next week. You won't want to miss that. I suppose that's quite important. So uh, here we've got this summary. Jesus doing this ministry. The crowds are growing. And you can imagine, can't you, if, if one man's getting a following... And he's continually clashing with the leadership. It's going to come to a head. And this is where it comes to a head. At the end of Mark chapter 3. First of all, we see the followers of Jesus. Then we'll see the family of Jesus. And then thirdly, we'll see the foes of Jesus. So first of all, the followers. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. And then Mark gives us a list. Peter, James, John, and, and those twelve. We won't read the list for now. Maybe this evening we'll look at the list just in passing. But for now, the list doesn't make that much difference. We know roughly who they are. But, but notice what's going on here. First of all, Jesus is initiating. Okay, I think that's worth noticing, that he's calling them to him. Later on, we'll see it's possible to reject him. So he's not forcing or twisting arms, but he's calling them to him. And then look at his methodology. He, he spends time with them, that they might be with him, and then he sends them out. I just have to tell you, I think that's a great way, the best way of training people, preparing people to spend time together and then to send them out. That's what Jesus does with, with these twelve. He calls them, they come, they spend time with him. How much do they understand? Do they understand who he is? Do they really have a clear picture uh, of, of all of this theology of the New Testament? No, not yet. But gradually, as they spend time with him. The fact is, we don't all have a clear picture either, do we? 
You know, if, if you think you've got your theology absolutely sorted, you know everything there is to know about theology, you come and autograph my Bible afterwards. The fact is we're all works in progress, aren't we? And we're all just like these 12, spending time with Jesus, still with some doubts, some confusion at times, some questions unanswered, but being with Jesus. Well, then it moves on from his followers and it moves to his family. This is where it gets a little bit more interesting in some ways, because in verse 20, it says that then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I'd kind of like to see that, wouldn't you? Imagine the crowd so tight that as they take the food from the plate, they get nudged and it misses. I mean, it's just quite a vivid you know, scene, isn't it? The crowd is crowding in. They can't even finish their sandwich because the crowds are just too much. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Whew. Now, that, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? If Jesus is who he says he is, and his family don't get it, that should raise some questions in our minds. If you hear of a famous preacher somewhere, one of these you know, big famous preachers, but his wife isn't so impressed. His children aren't so impressed. Maybe we shouldn't be so impressed. I mean, that, that's what, it's obvious, isn't it? If, if, if the people closest to somebody don't honor and respect them for who they are, then it should raise questions in our minds. And that's what we have here. The ones that had lived with him, the ones that had watched him, they think he's gone nuts. They, they think he's lost it up here. Well, I just raised that because that's what people against Jesus would say. But I think it's important that we just, for a little moment, do a sneak preview here and fast forward and see where this ends up. Because ultimately, Jesus' family do not stand by what they thought at this point. And that's critical. It's understandable at this point, isn't it? I mean, here's Jesus. He's the oldest son, presumably worked with Joseph, his um, father. Right for a while, Joseph's never mentioned once Jesus is on the scene as an adult, so presumably Joseph has died, which would have meant Jesus had become the, the, the leader of the family, the man in the home. He was the one uh, running the family business, and suddenly he lays down his tools and he heads off into the countryside and starts preaching and casting out demons. And his younger half-brothers are all scratching their heads thinking, what has got into him? And now he's in this house and the crowd's all around and, uh, and rumors are spreading. You can imagine what his family are thinking, can't you? This is getting out of hand. It's not that they're saying he, he doesn't have the character or he, he's fatally flawed in some way. They just don't know what's going on. And, uh, and when they see the tension rising with the, the spiritual leadership, even Mary, I would presume, finds a bit of a tension with that. What, this, this shouldn't be this way. Even with all that she knew and all that she'd gone through. So the family come, just think, oh man, we've got to get him out of here before things get out of hand because obviously he's losing it. Fast forward. This is actually not a great critique of Jesus. This is a great support of who Jesus is. Let me tell you why. Because his brothers, including James and Judas, Jude he would have been known as. Judas became less popular after a while. But James and, and Jude, they didn't believe in Jesus. They believed in him as their brother. They didn't believe in him as the Messiah. 
until he rose from the dead. And, and then what do you find? In the book of Acts, you find James, the brother of Jesus, becoming one of the three main leaders of the church in Jerusalem, replacing another James who had just been killed for it. Now, that's not the action of somebody that isn't really sure of who Jesus is. So much so that later on, actually, you read, read on in your Bibles, you'll find a book called James, written by James, the brother of Jesus. So, so, so he comes around. And Jude, brother of Jesus, later on, he writes a book that gets in the New Testament. You see, the, the family at this time, they think things are out of hand. Later on, they're willing to die for him who died for them and rose again. And so don't think that this is something that should worry us or concern us. This is something that underlines ultimately in history who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But at this point, they don't get it. At this point, they're on a rescue mission to get him out before he gets himself into trouble, just like any good family. And then you come to the foes. You've got followers, you've got a family, and then you've got the foes, the enemies of Jesus. These are the ones that had been, um, well, they'd been a little bit tense with Jesus already. They'd been asking questions and probing and, uh, and creating a little bit of tension in the air. Every time you read the Pharisees or the, the teachers of the law, there's background music playing in Mark's gospel. Dum, da, dum, dum. This is sinister. And so verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, this is what they said. They're, they're watching Jesus. They're hearing the rumors. They're maybe seeing him in action. Maybe you can imagine them coming in all their garb, uh, marching towards this house where the crowd is gathered. And as they come to the edge of the crowd, the people on the edge see who they are and perhaps step aside and uh, maybe say, oh, it's exciting, isn't it? He's casting out demons. He's casting out demons. He's healing. Isn't this amazing? And the, the, the voices are coming at them and these religious leaders, they decide to make their judgment now. The evidence is in. They've heard what's been happening, they've seen the uh, signs, they've checked out all the exhibits, and here's their conclusion. He is possessed by Beelzebub. That doesn't sound good, does it? Even if you don't know what Beelzebub means, it's, it just doesn't sound very positive, but it isn't. This is, this is a reference to uh, something like the Lord of the Flies, the, some, some great prince of demons. Uh, in, in fact, they say, by the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. This is their decision. This is where the energy comes from. This is the power source. This is the fuel in the tank of this man, Jesus. As far as they're concerned, he's from the pit. It's harsh, isn't it? Extremely harsh. Bizarre, in fact, when you, when you realize just how much everything he was doing had been spoken of in the Old Testament as evidence that this, uh, a man coming doing these things would be the Messiah sent from God, but they refuse. No way. He cannot be. He's possessed. And so Jesus called them. And he spoke to them in parables. Look at Jesus' response. This is key moment in Mark's gospel so far. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. You just look in history. When a nation has a civil war, 
It's not a pretty picture. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If you have a family and there's, there's fighting in there, it's not a, a good scene. It's, it's negative, not, not positive. It doesn't achieve much. And in the same way, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Listen, leaders of the nation, uh, let me just tell you this. Your logic is ridiculous. If what I'm doing is Satan... Well, then Satan's lost already. And it makes no sense. Why would Satan fight Satan? Why would uh, a stronger demon kick out smaller demons? I mean, this, this is nonsense. It makes no sense. Let me tell you what is actually happening. Verse 27. In fact, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Okay, thanks Jesus, that's clear as crystal. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder, don't you, like, what, how, how are they supposed to get that? Well, let's just build a, a picture of what he's saying in verse 27. These people have been held captive by demon possession. Getting a grip on their lives, whatever they do, they cannot shake it. And they're saying that a demon is casting out demons, and Jesus says, no, that cannot be, that's nonsense. No, to, to defeat Satan, who in this picture here is the strong man holding people captive, it takes a stronger man to bind him who, to then release the captives. You think of uh, perhaps a hostage release situation. You know, imagine that you've got a relative and they're overseas and they get uh, held captive and, and they're in some building somewhere in the jungle uh, held by armed militia. If they're going to be rescued, who do you want to rescue them? Another group of militia? A few friends who decide to club together, buy a gun and head into the jungle? Of course not. That's ridiculous. You want the very strongest, don't you? The best of the best. You want the SAS going in there. And even then you're hoping it's going to work out because it doesn't always. You want someone stronger to go in and defeat the enemy and rescue the captives. And Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger one. I'm not Satan. I'm stronger than him. Remember what John the Baptist had been preaching back at the start of chapter 1. We, we heard it last week. When he was down there uh, uh, baptizing people and he was preaching a, a message of repentance and a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Mark tells us what he was preaching. He says that there is one coming after me who is, do you remember what it was? Who is more powerful, stronger. Same word. Someone's coming after me that is in a category so high in terms of his power and authority that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. So it's not slave and dignitary. This is me and somebody entirely above me. Somebody stronger. Remember in the same passage that, that Mark quoted from Isaiah. He said in Isaiah the prophet, and he, he explains what's going on. Interestingly, there's a passage in Isaiah that we don't know. I mean, we're not familiar with our Old Testaments. We haven't grown up just memorizing it like the, the Jewish people would. But I suspect the leaders, the teachers of the law, their minds might have gone here. When Jesus says a strong man binding the strong one so that they can be released, I, I wonder if their minds went back to this passage. Just listen and see what you think. It's not definite, but it, to me it feels like it. This is Isaiah 49, 
where, where the nation of Judah, 700 years back in the past, the nation of Judah was told they were going to go into exile, they were going to be held captives in Babylon, and that must have been the, the most hopeless situation. How can you be released when you're being held by the strongest empire on the planet, with strong soldiers, swifter than leopards, and all the stuff that you, you, you read of in, in Habakkuk 1? Well, they're going to be held by these, and yet God gives them this hope. At the end of Isaiah 49, in verse 24, he says, Can plunder be taken from warriors, or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord, all capitals, this is what Yahweh says. And I emphasize that because, I mean, generally I go with the Lord, that's the way the Jews refer to him, because you don't pronounce the name of God. But I, I will pronounce it uh, in this context, because I think it's important we realize what it's referring to. Yahweh, the God who makes promises and keeps them, the God who created, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, or Jehovah, as some would pronounce it, this is what he says. He says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. Now that's hope, isn't it? You're going to be held captive in a foreign land and God says, I'll fight them. Okay. Then we have hope. Then in the next verse, uh, he says, your children I will save. Skip a bit, end of the next verse. All mankind, then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One, the Strong One of Jacob. You, you see the, the links there? Who can release people under the captive power of, of Satan? The Strong One can. The mighty one, the one who is their savior, their deliverer, he can contend, he can bind the strong man, and he can release them. And I suspect that those leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and it made them grit their teeth even more. He's calling himself the Lord. Sometimes we think it's only John that, that gives us a really high view of Jesus. No, 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 it's, it's in all the Gospels. This isn't something that, that was added later on. If you read the Da Vinci Code, be careful. It's just a great story, load of nonsense. You know, and, and some of these films and some of these things that come out, they give you the idea that Jesus was a nice guy. You know, Mr. Nice Guy. And he did nice things. Uh, and then rumors spread. And over time, you know, the rumors kind of got out of hand. And before you know it, 325 AD, they took a vote and said, let's make him into a god. And they all said, okay, here, here. And they made him into a god. Uh, and then, you know, Christianity went from there. Nonsense. History absolutely ridicules that kind of explanation. At the very beginning, as you read through the Gospels, you'll find the leaders, the experts, ready to condemn Jesus to death. Why? Because he claimed to be God. Because he claimed to be equal with the Father. Don't get caught up in the nonsense of, uh, of uh, Dan Brown fiction or even the nonsense that you might hear of on the BBC from religious experts. The Bible is clear. The history is clear. From the very beginning, Jesus stood tall and he stood as God in the midst of his people. And the ones who understood what he meant were ready to kill him for it. Jesus says, I'm the strong one. 
I can bind Satan because I am stronger than Satan. Verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven then. Let's just let that word soak in for a minute. Need to have the rest of the gospel to understand how we can have our sins forgiven. In fact, it will come out next Sunday how exactly we can have sins forgiven. But, but here what he says, all sins, that includes your sins. That includes the things you've done, the things I've done, the things you've said, the things you've thought, the things I've said and thought. All the sins that we, we, we wish we could erase. The ones that linger in the backs of our minds, in the backs of the closets of our lives, hoping they'll never come out. We can be forgiven. We can be forgiven everything. There's nothing, nothing at all that will not be forgiven except one thing. Look at what he says. The one thing is, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. You mustn't pull that out of its context. And, and turn that into some a statement about uh, whatever. No, it's a statement about what's going on here. Is it okay to have doubts about Jesus? Absolutely it's okay. If you have doubts, join the club. Even in the gospel we find others who, who were followers of Jesus having doubts. Is it okay to have questions? Of course it's okay. Ask the questions. It's okay. Jesus is strong enough to cope with questions, you know. You're not going to undermine him by asking questions. Concerns, confusion, misunderstandings, no problem. Jesus is okay with that. What's not okay is to take the position that these religious leaders took. It was a position that was a fixed position. It was a, a folded arms, chin jutting out, pursed lips position of the heart. That says basically, I don't care what you do. I don't care how you prove yourself. I refuse to accept that you are from God. Now if you take that position... In your heart. If you absolutely refuse to accept that Jesus is who he claims to be. If you say, I don't care if he rises from the dead. I will never accept that he has come from heaven to rescue me. I'm just not going to go there. I refuse. If that's your position, you are committing the eternal sin. There's no hope for you. You see, it is possible to reject God. He gives us that freedom. God never twists our arms and forces us to be part of his family. He just doesn't do it. We have the freedom to reject. The one freedom I don't think we have, looking at this passage, is, is the freedom to be neutral. I, I, as I read this, I, I feel like, man, Jesus is so strong, such a powerful presence, that, that he polarizes you know that word polarizes? It, it's, you get a, a tray full of magnets, and then you push a magnet into the midst of them, a strong one. Some of them will be drawn to it. Others will be pushed away. But none of them will stand still. That's what Jesus is like. Jesus is so powerful, so strong, so significant. You push Jesus into the midst of a crowd of people, and people will scatter away, and others will draw near. But none will stand still. Put Jesus in a church. Guess what happens? When a church starts to really present Jesus in all the biblical fullness of who he is, you'll find some people will recoil. They'll draw away. 
and others will draw close. But remaining neutral is not an option. Jesus is too important to allow us to simply say, "Ah, I don't know. Take it or leave it, I'm not sure. It's too important for that. He commands a response. And so that's what's going on here. He's got these leaders and these leaders are absolutely committed. They are fixed in their decision. This man is not from God. He must be from the pit of hell. And so Jesus says, if you reject the work of the Spirit in me, there's no forgiveness for that. Very strong, isn't it? But it makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Remember how he started this passage with the followers and, and then we saw the family and then we saw the foes right at the center. It's like a, like a sandwich. We've got bread and, and butter and meat in the middle and the meat is the focus of this passage. It, this is the, the climactic point but we've still got the, uh, the butter and the bread if, if you like to still come. And so f- uh, followers, family, foes, family, followers. See, see what I mean. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother And brothers arrived. They'd set out before to get him. Now they've arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And we know why they've come. They've come to take him away and and say, they're there, dear, it's okay. That's not what Jesus is interested in. and, And he distances himself from them. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? That's not what it's about right now. Being physically related to me is not, is not where it's at. They think I'm mad. The leaders think I'm bad. Now the important thing here is who am I and how do you respond to me? And so he comes to his followers and, and look what he says about his followers. He looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my followers. No, he doesn't. He says, here are my mother. And my brothers. Isn't that amazing? Jesus wasn't dishonoring his mother at this point. It was just that that his family wasn't getting it. And Jesus distanced himself from them. And instead he said, no, the ones who are really with me, that's these guys. That's these folks here sitting around close to me, the ones that have been drawn to me rather than the ones who have been uh, rejecting me, the ones who have been recoiling from me. These are my family. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we, we can read this passage and feel so scared about the unpardonable sin. Let me tell you, if you are concerned about the unpardonable sin because you love Jesus and you'd hate to do that, you're not doing it. That by definition, if you respond to Jesus by being drawn to him, by loving him, by wanting to please him, wanting to know him, you're not committing the unpardonable sin. Instead, you're moving into this category that you might call followers, but Jesus calls brothers, mother, family. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe steps down into this world, faces those who oppose him, And then turns to those who are drawn to him and calls them family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. God's will in this context is accepting Christ. Jesus is like a great big magnet. And when he's pushed into the midst of of people 
There's only two options. Either we recoil, we reject him, we we pull away, or or we draw closer and want to know more and and have some questions and and we're intrigued by him. And and something deep inside us sort of flutters. It, It sort of skips a little bit as we hear him talking about being his brother, his sister. What a privilege. Jesus. Jesus, such a significant person, such a significant individual, that he demands a response from every one of us. So what is it? Do we reject? Or do we relate? There's no other option. There's no wait and see. There's no, uh, I'm not sure. It's okay. If you don't have all the answers, that's okay. None of us do. But if you're seeking, that's okay. If you want to know more, that's okay. I'm not rushing you. I'm just saying that ultimately, there's only two options. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, I kind of like Jesus. No, you're either in or you're out. You're either drawn closer or you're pushed away. And so let me ask you this morning, what do you feel inside about Jesus? That's an important question. What do you feel? I could ask, what do you think about Jesus? But actually, we all think good things about Jesus. I could say, what do you believe about Jesus? But actually, even Satan could come out with some good truths about Jesus. I say, what do you, what do you feel about him? Do you find deep down that you hate him? That you just can't tolerate the idea of God helping you? Or do you find that deep down, in some way, maybe it's not crystal clear, maybe it's still kind of an early stage, but you kind of like him? Do you find yourself liking Jesus? Do you find yourself drawn to him? Maybe that's Jesus at work by his spirit, drawing you in deeper, drawing you in closer, drawing you in to become a member of his family. You know, all of us either reject or relate. Jesus is so significant that we have to respond. 